0: from berkeley california i'm frank ling and you're listening to the Rock science show that's right it's a weekly look at the world of science technology and the way it affects our daily lives coming up on today's show professor junko habu will tell us about cultural anthropology stay right here we'll be back in a few moments Welcome back to the program. When we talk about sustainable development, sometimes it's better to look back in order to move forward. Well, joining us today is our very special guest, Professor Junko Habu from the Department of Archaeology from UC Berkeley. She specializes in cultural anthropology and has conducted extensive research on Japan's Jomon period. Professor Habu, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. So you've been working on a fascinating part of social science, Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about cultural anthropology and how you got involved in it?
1: I'm actually, uh, I was trained as an archaeologist, which is part of the Department of Anthropology. I was born in Japan, and uh, when I grew up in Japan in the 1960s and early 70s, that was a time when Japan went through rapid economic growth and a massive amount of land development. My parents were living in the suburb of Tokyo in Yokohama City, where we saw a large amount of land developments going on, and with that came um, destruction of a large number of archaeological sites. So um, that made me think, wow, all these sites being destroyed, what can we do with Shells, arrowheads scattered around, um, something needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's how I first got involved in archaeology. So I got interested in the materials, but um, that was tied to the environmental destruction at that time.
0: I see. So it wasn't Indiana Jones or some other pop culture that inspired you?
1: No, I was interested in the story of Heinrich Schliemann, Troy, for example, but that wasn't really the direct cause. That was kind of a separate um, interest of mine.
0: So you've had extensive international experience, and you've done a lot of work both in the U.S. and Japan. Uh, I'm just curious here, and I believe there's been a lot of debate over this question. um, Where did the Japanese population come from? Um, What are the current theories in this regard?
1: Well, that is a big question, and it's not really my specialty, but the big picture is that um, the Japanese is a mixture of uh, waves of migrants. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Paleolithic people, we know that the oldest evidence of the occupation in Japan goes back to about 35,000 years ago. That's the oldest evidence that we have. And uh, then we have the prehistoric Jomon people, which we think are mainly hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. and uh, that starts um, is a, uh, it starts about sixteen thousand years ago to about twenty five hundred years ago. In terms of skeletal remains, they share a number of similarities with certain types of Asian people, and what some physical anthropologists call an archaic type of Asian population. Now, of course, that said, that still must have been uh, the result of waves of migration. Mm -hmm. And then at the beginning of the Yayoi period, um, we see evidence of a larger number of um, people coming into the Japanese archipelago, which has very different types of skeletal remains characteristics that some people call as a new type of Asian population. Mm -hmm. And their physical characteristics indicate that um, they are the descendants of the people who got adapted to the colder climate at the end of the Ice Age. I see. So the Japanese people today is in the big picture, the mixture of these two groups but um that's not really the two different waves coming it's more of the series of migrations and then looking at dna's the archaic type has a number of different characteristics so it's not just um just two groups sure sure and
0: and so this ties into some of the studies related to climate change Mm -hmm. especially as it relates to say food security Mm -hmm. where we, we think disruptions could seriously Uh, cause shortages in the world. Uh, What lessons can we learn from some of these uh, events that have happened in the past, especially with someone who worked in the German period Mm -hmm. of societies that have been affected by food shortages?
1: I'm very interested in the correlations between climate change, food diversity, the size of population, social networks, and uh, the degree of sedentism of the people. And what we are finding with the Jomon data from about 6,000 years ago to 4,000 years ago, around 6,000 years ago was what we call the climatic optimum, when the sea level was the highest. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of corresponds to the end of what we call the early Jomon period. And then up until around 4,200 years ago, the climate was still relatively warm and then around 4200 years ago a cooling climate hit the area. That's the general picture that we get from um, marine cores and pollen data. At the end of the middle Jomon period, which happened sometime between 4500 years ago to 200 years ago, we see a bo- big population decline and a lot of people in the past said that well cooling climate caused the population decrease. This doesn't quite explain. um, It's not really an explanation. Number one, it still doesn't explain how it happened. And number two, we don't quite know if this cooling climate occurred before or after the population decrease. So part of my research focuses on the identifying the timing of the cooling climate and the actual population decrease. But the bigger picture that I'm interested in is that if the climate change was one of the many factors that we should consider, mm-hmm. and if other factors may have been the principal cause that caused the population decrease, one of the things that we are very interested in is if um, more emphasis on plant food that seemed to have been an ongoing trend during the Jomon period, if a more focus on a particular type of plant food made their food diversity much lower than what it used to be, and if that system was um, something that was vulnerable in the long run.
0: You know, you've suggested this idea of, of a, a food transition where mm-hmm. the, the German population went from supposedly hunter-gatherers mm-hmm. to farmers. Uh, what's the evidence that there's a transition in terms of their, their food practice?
1: Well, your question, it has a lot of implications. Number one, Generally speaking, hunter-gatherers versus farmers, there's no clear boundary. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to many archaeologists, every single one will probably say a different thing. That identify the Jomon people as hunter-gatherers with a heavy level of environmental management, including tending certain types of nut trees. Um, They had some Mm cultigens, but none of them seem to have been staple food. And in that regard, I believe that the name hunter gatherers can be used for the Jomon people. Right. So I'm talking about within the hunting gathering system mm-hmm. um, to what extent people started to rely on our selected species that um, the cycle is quick as opposed to um, K-selected species like large mammals. I see. And it seems like the shifts from K-selected to our selected occurred. By the time of um, the end of the mid early Jomon period, the shift was hitting the point that their staple food became plant food.
0: Okay, so when you say K-selected versus R-selected, what exactly? Oh, that's a,
1: a biologist, um, old biologist term that K-selected is it's um, like larger mammals that it takes longer, uh-huh. but um, when you harvest them, the return is big, like large mammal hunting would apply for that. That it may look efficient, but it cannot sustain a larger population. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you start looking for smaller mammals and plant foods, Mm -hmm. then it's more work for people, but um, you can harvest more.
0: You know, we're here at Berkeley right now, and well-known professors, Michael Pollan, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with him Mm -hmm. from the journalism school, has written this idea about... Mm -hmm people evolving with food uh mm-hmm. would you say that rice was somehow uh instrumental in how these uh, societies evolved in asia or, um or i'm sorry
1: could you rephrase your question which part of michael poland's work do you want idea, me to talk about
0: the idea of like uh certain crops playing a role in human evolution uh-huh. but also humans uh-huh. influencing uh-huh. its development uh-huh. uh th- there's been this idea that Without humans, rice would have probably gone extinct. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. because they found mm-hmm. it to be a viable source of yes. nutrition energy, um, that it became uh, a mainstream crop. Mm-hmm. W- would you say that rice played a big role in the Jomon period?
1: Rice is not part of Jomon. Well, we have s- a small number of grains excavated from Jomon sites. I don't think it was a staple food. Uh-huh. Um, getting back to your more general question of human crop relationships
0: right.
1: um, that certainly is, has been important um, in a way when we look at so-called natural environments, mm-hmm. very few of what we deal with is really natural mm-hmm. that um, mm-hmm. that's part of what we call historical ecology that most of what we call the environment is actually the result of a long term human environmental interactions Mm -hmm. that what we thought was natural was not really natural even say for example when you think of the amazonian tropical forest that was a result of the long-term human environmental interaction now crops definitely we deal with certain um, types of crops for example for the jomon period we are dealing with remains of barnyard grass and barnyard millet uh-huh. banyard millet is a cultivated, domesticated version of banyard grass. I see. And uh, it's possible that the transition <coughs> occurred during the Jomon period, mm-hmm. what we call here in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, when we look at the remains of banyard grass and banyard millet, both genus etchnochlora, uh, that we can see how that was incorporated into the food system of uh-huh. the Jomon people. I and ultimately, see. we are very interested in how domestication of plants occur That's part of the human, people's um, environmental management. So when we call hunter-gatherer, it's not people just taking natural resources in the vacuum, but people actively taming the environment.
0: In Japan, there's this idea of the Satoyama where mm-hmm. farmers cultivate, mm-hmm. but also, in a sense, respect or harmonize with the natural systems. Mm-hmm. Is that indigenous in japan or do many societies around the world also have a similar practice to to work with nature in a more sustainable way
1: first me let me tell you satoyama the concept satoyama has multiple definitions sure that what is promoted right now is a very idealized version of satoyama which i have nothing against but it Um, historically speaking Satoyama was community Mm -hmm. owning a particular area um, it's not even owning, communities um, residents allowed to do certain activities but when you read historical documents from the Edo period, each community has a very strong feeling about its own Satoyama. So it's not as if anybody can go in there. It was also very territorial. So in terms of that being unique to Japan, um, in terms of which one of Satoyama you are talking about is um, the first issue. It can be the idea of communal use of particular resources. Uh That idea can be applied to many indigenous communities in different parts of the world. And uh, in that regard, um, I'm very interested in the idea. Um, But ultimately, it leads to the question of if when we think of environmental issues or even in the case of archaeology, who owns the past or who owns the environment, there are two ways to think about it. That one is to really think about it's everybody's, therefore everybody has the right. On the other hand, in the context of contemporary sociopolitical climate, there are a number of marginalized groups whose rights need to be protected. So, um, depending on the context, growing up in Japan, I was taught that everybody's owns what's on the earth. That was more of the post-Second World War Japan's education coming uh-huh. to the United States. The indigenous rights for the native people is really emphasized. In this country, in the United States, people mm-hmm. tend to draw a boundary and uh, emphasize the ownership. So I, I see that these needs to be negotiated in different contexts.
0: You know, in, in terms of local food production or efficient mm-hmm. food production, do you, is Satoyama an I- idealized model or is that just a you know, conceptual discussion?
1: There are a lot of things we can learn from the Satoyama ideas. As I said, uh, the definition needs to be clarified and uh, I don't think using the Satoyama model would be the best way because the concept has just too many connotations. I know a lot of good people who are working with the concept of Satoyama, so I'm not against it. Mm -hmm. But in terms of my research, what I'm more interested in is um, to look at more specific case studies that are tied to the local communities Mm -hmm. and how we can um, maximize advantages of diverse systems that are currently working or if the current system is not working how can we make it more functional
0: recently you've also done some work related to the recovery in Fukushima and you've visited some of the sites that were affected by the earthquake and Mm -hmm. tsunami you know you've also seen uh, how communities have responded can you share some of your thoughts in terms of how what are some of the ways that communities can maintain their social capital and develop the resilience in the face of certain types of disasters. What do you mean
1: by social capital?
0: Interpersonal ties or, you know, more this idea of a community spirit that you you share a certain kinship with, with your neighbors or with your community so that when something happens, you can act together.
1: Well, let's talk about tsunami first because I think that's something that local people can do. A lot mm-hmm. that I've seen. Um, I'm not a specialist and I've only visited a small number of communities, so I don't really feel I'm qualified to talk about it. Within my limited experience, in the summer of 2011, I had an opportunity to visit several mm, locations in uh, Miyagi and Iwate prefectures where some of the communities that were um, damaged by the tsunami were trying to recover from the damage. And I've seen that some of the communities were actually doing much better, and they are the ones, they tend to be the ones that the local communities still had strong ties that the traditional villages and hamlets are functioning as um, local administrative units, and people are willing to work together from the bottom-up approach. Mm-hmm. And then and they were able to maximize the governmental support mm-hmm. in an efficient manner.
0: Right.
1: When the community ties were not there, uh, or when that is not functioning, even when the um, top-down funding support is there, then um, it's not functioning nearly as good mm-hmm. as uh, it could have been. Right. And in that regard, it's very important to um, have functioning small. Um, units, right. socio political units that, um, in a way, merging cities and villages um, in Japan, the recent change of Shichosongape, mm-hmm. that I think is causing problems, at least in some of the places. I
0: see.
1: And uh, you also asked me about Fukushima. I visited Fukushima several times after the disaster. The situation is very bad that it's beyond the local people's ability. But what they need right now is accurate information mm-hmm. to what extent the contamination is there. That local people are not necessarily provided with accurate information. The decontamination effort that is going right now is not um, necessarily the most most efficient way even that i've seen many decontamination procedures that the piles of salt that were removed from the surface are still piled up under a blue tarp that and obviously it's a temporary solution that right. kids are playing around there right. and people need to go there people need to see what's happening people need to talk to the local people and then come up uh, bottom-up approaches yeah. but even with that i think given the level of damage I'm not quite sure what is the best solution, and uh, we need to have more discussions. And the first thing is to have more data.
0: Uh, So speaking of data, I I mean, recently the Japanese government has passed a so-called security law that some would argue protects those people in power. Are you concerned that this will reduce the transparency of the local people in getting the accurate data?
1: I am concerned, yes, that I think the timing is bad, especially. But the issue of information flow, even before the law, um, I don't think the circulation was good to start with. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times, There seems to be a lot of people feel that it is safer not to talk about the Fukushima situation, that it's a type of self-censorship that people tend to avoid the topic. But I don't think we can keep avoiding the topic. The information flow is important. And uh, as scientists, we have the obligation to obtain the reliable data Mm -hmm. and have active discussions.
0: Well, I guess we're running uh, a little bit out of time here, and it's been a very uh, fascinating discussion with you. Are there any last uh, thoughts you'd like to share about your work or some of the, you know, interesting questions that are being asked in the field right now?
1: Well, let me tell you that I'm an archaeologist, and I belong to the Department of Anthropology, and I believe that really when we think about contemporary environmental issues, to think about really long-term perspectives is important. Sure. That when we talk about long-term sustainability. A lot of the times, people tend to put the target of like 2050 or 2100. But as an archaeologist, we know that 100 years is nothing. That unless we have much longer perspective, um, we will be in big trouble. And I hope that as an uh, anthropological archaeologist, um, we can contribute more to the active discussion of uh, human-environmental interactions.
0: Great. Well, Professor Habu, thank you so much for your time. It's been an inspiration. Thank you very much. And we were just talking to Professor Junko Habu from the Department of Archaeology at the University of California at Berkeley. We've been discussing long-term sustainability in the context of food transitions and cultural anthropology. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. If you'd like to contact us, we're at www.grox.net. You can reach us at science at groks.net. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music.